Hello and welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. My name is Carrie Smith. I'm here with Carter Laren. Uh, Deprogram is a show that we do occasionally. We get to interview people all about kind of the focus is on my my old belief system, which I most often call social justice ideology. But we're thrilled because today we have a special guest, Carter. Yeah, today we're joined by Konstantin Kissin. He's a Russian-born comedian, podcaster, writer, and social commentator. He made international headlines in 2018, which is probably why you've heard of him, uh, by refusing to, to sign a university behavioral agreement form, which banned jokes about both religion and atheism, uh, and insisted that all humor must be respectful and kind. Uh, uh, Konstantin is the reigning Jewish comedian of the year and has won a number of other comedy competitions, awards, and prizes. He's played some of the UK's biggest comedy clubs and has, has supported uh, Jeff Norcott, uh, Shazia Mirza, and Andrew Doyle, who is Tatiana McGrath, for those of you who don't know who Andrew Doyle is in the in the U.S., um, he took his debut hour Orwell that ends well <laughs> to the Edinburgh Fringe <laughs> Festival in 2019, uh, receiving a host of positive reviews. Constantine is a regular contributor to the uh, BBC, ITV, BBC Radio Five Live, and Love Sport. He is also the creator and co-host of the Trigonometry YouTube show, where two comics interview economists, political experts, journalists, and social commentators about interesting, controversial, and challenging subjects. You can follow him on Twitter at Constantine Kissin, uh, same as Instagram, and Facebook. He's Constantine Kissin from Russia with Laugh. I'll put links to all that stuff below. And you can check out Trigonometry um, at YouTube.com slash TriggerPod, or you can just search for Trigonometry on your favorite podcast app. With all that said, Constantine, welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. Thanks for having me. And sounds like an interesting guy you're describing there, so I can live up to that bio. And by the way, Kerry, when you were when you were saying we've got a very special guest, you then looked at your dog Tiger, and I thought I'm <laughs> just going to do the show with him. Like, woof, woof, every three seconds. Um, but anyway, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. How are you guys doing? Good. I mean, we're fine. You know, as as well as can be expected in this, the times that we live in. It's funny, I, uh, on the show, like, regularly, I tend, would you say that I tend to have more hope than you, Carter, about where we're at in terms oh, yeah. of social justice? Yeah, ideology? you think I'm a pessimist, but I'm a realist. But, but Carrie thinks but I'm then, a pessimist about where we are. Yeah, Yeah. so normally I feel like I'm doing pretty good regardless, but um, you happen to have caught me in a more pessimistic day. So we'll see where this goes. <laughs> so what are you pessimistic about right now? So I am, well, well, we were talking briefly before the show started. Um, I'm hearing from more people. We, we don't have quite the reach of trigonometry yet, but we have um, grown a little in the past couple of months. And I think just because this, my old belief system has become so predominant that there are people who used to write me off as kind of a ranting lunatic who are now contacting me and wanting advice on what to do in their workplace or... Um, how to talk to their children if their children are coming home and and speaking some of these things about like toxic masculinity or white privilege and so some days there's more of those than others and it starts to get me down but in general I have a lot of hope about where we're headed so uh, but enough about me <laughs> I wanted to ask you so for most of the people in our audience know who you are but can you tell us a little bit about the behavioral agreement you were asked to sign and how that thrust you into the spotlight yeah, so, uh, Carter, when you read it out, uh, there's actually about 13 other things that they, they said that I couldn't joke about. So it was, um, 
I can't remember the full list now. It was I even to, worse than that, is what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, way worse than that, yeah. Uh, it banned jokes about racism, sexism, classism, ageism, ableism, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia, anti-religion, anti-atheism. And then it said all jokes must be respectful and kind. Um, <laughs> That's totally but, reasonable. I don't know why you wouldn't sign it. Because <laughs> I'm racist, obviously. That, at least that's oh, people, I heard you were a Nazi. Decided. So, yeah. yeah, same thing. Jewish Nazi, great niche for a comedian. Uh, but yeah, um, he was. Uh, so they, I was performing at a comedy club in London, one of the biggest clubs here in the UK. Uh, and after the show, uh, a student came up to me and he was like, hey, man, I loved your stuff. Uh, would you like to come and raise money for charity for us? So basically, they were asking me to donate my time to help them raise money for UNICEF. And I was like, yeah, sure. Uh, and I think they invited everybody who was on the bill that night, so about four or five of us. Uh, and, you know, you get people coming up to you after a show all the time, so I didn't really think very much about it. A couple of months down the line, I get an email from this guy, and the email is like, hey, you know, we spoke, blah, blah, blah. Uh, would you mind if my colleague at the union or whatever gets in touch with you about uh, being part of this show? Great, yeah, no problem. And when they do, they, they're like, they, this other person gets in touch with me and is like, here's, uh, we're very happy to have you. We just needed to sign this little contract. <laughs> and, and I looked at it and I was just like, I mean, look, I think if they were offering me like, I don't know, $50,000 to do it, I might have thought about it in a different way. But this was like, they're asking me to donate my time to help them raise money for charity and then they're giving me a bunch of these rules having already seen my my performance so they know that they like me they know that they like my comedy it's not like they just picked the guy out of the blue and went you've got to make sure you're not some secret racist comic right they they'd seen my stuff they knew that i wasn't any of those things right that i wasn't going to be bigoted or because that's not who i am uh, and i just thought it was quite insulting first of all but also, and here's, you know, your old belief system, as you call it. Um, this is where that comes in, is I was aware, particularly through doing trigonometry, but also just through being alive and paying attention to what's happening in society, that this was a mindset that was spreading. Mm -hmm. This idea that words are harmful, that words are violence, that safe spaces are needed, that, that we must protect people from being offended. I saw this happening. I saw this happening in the media, I saw this happening on television, I saw this happening through doing trigonometry, I saw this happening through performing comedy, where, you know, I have jokes, you know, I'm quite dark skinned, and I talk about coming to Britain from Russia, uh, and people, you know, being rude to me on the basis of my skin color and all that sort of thing. And I saw over the years of me doing comedy that jokes about that always got a big laugh from ethnic minorities. But increasingly, the white people would clench up and tighten up and start looking around for an ethnic minority person to approve of them laughing. <laughs> right. right, right. Secondhand Yeah, and comedy. I started going, right, uh, there's something wrong here. When, when, when you make a joke about race, not a racist joke, but a joke about race, and everybody in the room looks at the black guy in the corner and goes, is he laughing? There's something yeah. wrong. But well, that's, it that actually seems kind of racist. If I were the black guy in the corner and everyone looked at me every time there was a joke about blacks, black people, I would actually feel more uncomfortable than if they just laughed like I had. Right. Yeah. Right. 
and so what what all of that was saying to me is we now have a culture where people are they're not worried about being offended they're worried about being perceived as someone who laughed at a joke that they shouldn't have laughed right yeah uh, so like I, I have one of my favorite bits that I ever did was about how we need the Special Olympics for white people right uh, <laughs> and, it, and it was a whole routine based around white people being not as good at sport as black people, <laughs> right. right? So just so like the, a white person's target, dance, com dance competition, same kind of, same kind of thing, right? Exactly. <laughs> and, and there was a whole thing about how you know how 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 that would work, and it was always the black people who loved it, and it was always the white people who who got to. And I'm not talking about like white genuine white nationalist white people who were offended that I was making fun of white people. They were worried that even that routine was somehow offensive to black people, you know, to black people, not to right. white people. Right. Isn't that, so, that's crazy. so making fun of, so any idea that maybe people from different races have different skills and some, and, you know, you just, you need to look at sport to see that that is the case. Right. Yeah. You know, I, uh, but, but even noticing that was now borderline offensive. Yeah. I, I just emailed them back saying, you know, this isn't how comedy works. You don't get to tell us what to do. The people who decide what, what they say on stage are comedians. Uh, and, you know, the freedom to explore is very important. And I tweeted about it to my then, like, 1,000 followers. I was really not a Twitter person at the time. Uh, but it just so happened that a couple of people picked it up. And then I woke up the next day, and it was, like, a major international news story. Yeah. I saw that original tweet. and It, it went viral. And... I was so encouraged because having come from the social justice world, but also specifically the comedy world, working on the business side of comedy, that sounds so boring, doesn't it? The business side of comedy. But uh, I had seen this, what you're talking about, my old belief system spreading and the way that it had affected comedians and, and routines and audiences. And even though I primarily worked with comedians who I would call woke or who shared my belief system, but they were constantly being asked to censor themselves further because you can't ever be pure enough, right? And so to see that, I, I completely understand why that went viral because it was so inspiring for people. I felt like, oh my gosh, here's a comedian saying no. Just no to this one small thing. It seems small, but it's it's a rather large statement. So anyway, I thank you for that. Well, it... it you know, it's interesting. I tried to get this point across in the days that followed because it became such a big story. Uh, just to put it in context for people, the day when it happened, the prime minister of this country, the British prime minister, was nearly removed from office by her own party. Right. And on that day, this was the second biggest story on the BBC News website, which is by far and away the biggest story. So it was literally the, the leader of the country. It's like Donald Trump being kicked out of off, nearly being kicked out of office by Republicans. Right. That would be quite a big story, I'd imagine. Right? <laughs> I would think. Right. So it was that. And then comedian turns down. <laughs> and, and people were like. People were shocked and everybody was like, I kept getting other comedians messaging me going, well, oh, you've got a great PR team. And I was going, I didn't do anything. I just tweeted about it. You know, I, I literally did nothing to push the story at all. Yeah. And it went so big. And I tried to explain to people in the days that followed my understanding of why it went viral. And I think you, you've summed it up perfectly, Kerry, which is ordinary people 
up and down the country, here in America, in the West more generally, feel like they cannot say what they think anymore. Mm -hmm. And that if they do, they will be punished. So essentially, we all live as if we've signed this contract. Yeah. That's how people feel. Yeah. Right. And so I think what happened was when people saw that, they were like, well, that's what I'd like to do in my life. And this this guy's done it. And I think that so it had nothing to do with me. It was just a, 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 I was like a, a pl in place into which people could project their own concerns, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that tells you how big a problem that we had at the time. And uh, let's be honest, in the last few months, it's got a lot worse. Yeah. yeah. You know, at, right after this. Uh, I, one of the kind of famous clips is of Rebecca Reed like shushing you on <laughs> national television. You guys are having a conversation, and her her argument becomes shh to you, um, and she's kind of taking you down this path of like trying to get you to say that you're racist. She's kind of like, well, are you going to say racist things? What about homophobic things? Are you bigoted towards these people? She was kind of going through the list, and the thing that I think wasn't addressed on that show, but I know you've addressed it, is it's not necessarily the list that's a problem, although that's also a problem. It's that all of these things are not objective and everyone knows it. Everyone knows that you're racist if someone says that they felt like you were racist. And so you're signing your own death warrant by signing that. It's a blank check to just come after you with pitchforks. Right. And, and on top of that, I would also say that anyone who sends you that sort of contract is already framing that space as a space in which they are looking for that and to be offended by something like that, right? Nice. So uh, I used to have a joke about how Americans would argue with me and they would say Russians don't understand democracy. And I'd be like, well, got Trump elected, didn't we? Right. And, <laughs> and, and even though, I, as we now know, that isn't actually true, but it was a good joke. Right. It was a it's good still joke. a good joke, but even if it's is, not true. It's still a good joke. <laughs> right. But my point is that if you are one of these people who thinks Donald Trump is a white supremacist who who's who spends every day, you know, murdering ethnic minority children or whatever he's accused of doing, then what, what isn't that a racist joke? I'm taking pride in getting a white nationalist elected by subverting the, the U.S. democratic system. I mean, you can you can make that argument. Right. Right. If Donald Trump, if you've got TDS and you think any mention of Donald Trump in any in any way that isn't overtly negative is automatically support for him and he's a white supremacist, then it's perfectly logical within that illogical system to say, well, that's that's a, that's a joke that supports and enables white supremacy. In right? fact, that so joke could support all those things that were listed: homophobia, racism, classism, like like transphobia, all that stuff. Because uh, he represents all of that to them. Right. Right. Absolutely. And that's not to say that I'm a huge fan of Donald Trump or, or that I believe that, you know, the, the Russian government should try and meddle in, in Western elections. Not at all. It's just a joke. Right. And my job as a comedian is to go, well, I'm from Russia. You're from this country. Where's the connection point between us where I can go? Here's a funny thing about something that happened. Right. That's that's all you do as a comedian. That's that's your job. Your job isn't to. To, to watch out that someone might be offended by it. You have to, we all have to have a level of, uh, you know, you're not playing to the whole IQ distribution, right? There's a part of that IQ distribution that you will never reach unless you do, just do jokes about how fat you are, which never particularly interested me, right? So if you want to do anything that has any kind of ambition 
in terms of creativity, you're always going to find that there's going to be some people who don't understand it. And I'm not prepared when I was doing comedy, <laughs> haven't done it for a while because we've had the lockdown. But when I was doing comedy, I wasn't prepared to have my comedy dictated by that tiny end of the IQ distribution of people who simply don't have the capacity to understand what you're doing. I don't care what they think. Never bothered me. You know, and I think I should be free to say that if yep. people want to be offended by that, they can be. And but that that's their problem. It's not my problem. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your trigonometry, the podcast, how that started and how that's grown in in the wake of that tweet going viral? Well, th those things weren't necessarily all that related, Kerry. So it certainly helped. It didn't da damage the brand at all right. for a show called Trigonometry. Me turning down that contract was quite helpful. Uh, but mainly it was my colleague uh, Francis Foster and I, uh, about two and a half years ago now, uh, we just felt like the world was moving in a very strange direction. And I, I wouldn't have been able to, to, to name the problem at the time. I wouldn't have been able to say this is social justice or the far left or, or whatever it might be. I just felt like, whoa, hold on a second, like five years ago, everything was fine and now i get people telling me that because i'm a man i'm inherently evil and oppressive and i was like well, what when did when what i didn't get the notification about now being <laughs> oppressive and evil right like, like that happened outside of my visual awareness or i'd i you know i'd, I'd go on facebook and be having a conversation with somebody and and say well actually i do i don't think that fat positivity is a good thing because obesity is bad for your health. And then I'd get an email the next day saying, well, your booking cancellation with our comedy yes. is canceled because you don't have the right opinions, right? And I'd be like, well, well what? Well, why, well, how are these things connected? Like you booked me because you know I'm funny and you like me. And then I, I expressed a medically factual statement on Facebook and, and now you, you've decided to unbook me? For, how does that work? Like. I didn't, I didn't know that I had to have the right opinion. I just thought my job was to, to entertain people, right? Um, so all of that was happening and we were just, we felt increasingly uneasy about it. Uh, and more broadly, and this is where, you know, one of the big reasons that Francis and I started Trigonometry is his family are originally from Venezuela or a part of his family are. I'm mostly from Russia, the Soviet Union. And what I see is that all of this stuff that you describe as your former ideology or your religion ideology, in a way. Right, right. Is we can talk about different aspects of it, but at the core of it, it's um, it's an attempt to destroy Western civilization from within. It is an attempt to undermine and tear down all the founding principles of Western civilization that have made it the one place that is actually quote unquote progressive in the world. The place where gay people don't get thrown off buildings. The place where women actually have the right to drive a car and vote in elections and not be beaten up by the hus husband. And, and if that happens to for the husband to be prosecuted under the law, right? Russia, for example, just decriminalized how, uh, a man beating his wife, right? It's no wow. longer a crime, right? So, uh, and, and you can go down the list in terms of freedom of expression. It's one of the unique places in the world where you can speak freely, right? And we enjoy all sorts of other freedoms and benefits of Western civilization being the way that it is. And what social justice, uh, whatever this thing is, 
is doing it's it's an attempt to pull down every single one of those pillars mm -hmm. the idea that we're all equal is now a racist concept the idea that freedom of speech is a universal birthright of every human being that is now problematic and something only the far right believe apparently this is what i keep being told yeah and so and you go down and down the list objectivity rationality all of the things that underpin every success of western civilization our scientific progress the values of the enlightenment all of this is now white supremacy and racism and whatever, right? So what I see and what Francis, I'm sure, saw, even though we had no language to describe it at the time, we just felt it, was something's wrong. And the, all the things that we value about this society that we know is unique, right? Because we've experienced different things. They are under threat. Now, we got to start doing something about it. We can't just pretend it's not happening. So we started trying to have conversation with people who, who could talk uh, ex as an expert about that and, and you know, and other people too. Uh, and with, with doing that, we've got into all sorts of other areas and issues. But that was the, the kind of where the whole uh, birthplace of the project is from. I'm glad you're saying that because, you know, uh, it's something that I think sounds very hyperbolic. Like we've, we've said, you know, I think for a while, like, hey, if you, a lot of people are very confused about what's going on, and the the kind of through line, the the one unifying feature you can you can tell from all this wokeism is, if it's if it is something that is supportive of the Enlightenment values in Western civilization, it is to be torn down. That's the way to think about this, and I think a lot of people just think that's very hyperbolic, but that's how this plays out, and I think fundamentally that's where the philosophical roots of this lie. But don't you think in the past? month the past two months since it's become so dominant culturally this this belief system that i think that is starting to sound less hyperbolic to people now they're starting I, I to recognize to make that point i was about oh, to make that go point. right ahead sir no no no, no. Yeah. please don't call me sir i feel even older than, oh, than no. <laughs> but but uh but you're absolutely right both of you um it doesn't feel hyperbolic anymore. I, I recorded an interview with uh, a former deputy prime minister of Australia about a year ago that they put out um, a month or two ago, in which I was talking about the same thing. And at the time, it sounded hyperbolic, but it doesn't sound hyperbolic now. Look, look at well, look at what what's being what's happening right now in terms of anti-racist training in schools and and in workplaces. They're literally they're literally saying that being objective, being rational. All that those are that's evidence of white supremacy, right? Yeah, that's what they're saying. Yeah, in, in terms, they're not they're not concealing it anymore. They're not pretending that it's something. They're saying it like that. Yeah, I mean, they, and they, individualism, they, which yeah, is crazy you, because right. individual. Yeah. yeah, But individualism is like that's that to me is the craziest thing that they're they're now openly attacking and trying to say they're trying to attack it by what like you said calling it a mark of white supremacy when it's like white supremacy is collectivist just like the social justice ideology it's not about individualism at all but i think i think this works on people who don't think about what words mean yeah you know and i think also you and i actually discussed it recently on facebook i think a lot of these people uh that that are passively supportive or or not non-objecting to this stuff uh, they do it because if they were to think about it, they know where that would lead them. Mm -hmm. They know that they would end up with people like us uh, and they 
don't necessarily aspire to that. They don't aspire to being slandered and mislabeled and called names, etc. And so a lot of people prefer to just say nothing Mm -hmm. uh, and just because they think it will go away. This is the naivety that I try to disenthrall people of as someone, as I say, who comes from a society which which has gone through different stages, right? The idea that all the good things that we now have will continue the way that they are when these crazy people tear down the whole system is preposterous. <laughs> you know, the idea that you're going to have a, a cultural revolution and then everything that you like and, and, and value is going to stay the same is ridiculous. It's not going to happen. When these people tear down the founding principles of Western civilization, it's going to cease to be Western civilization, right? Because yeah. if you build bridges based not on mathematics, but on social justice, those bridges are going to fall down, right? right. And, and whatever else you talk about, that's what's going to happen. So if, if, if our society is underpinned by freedom and you destroy that, if our society is underpinned by science and rationality and objectivity and you destroy that, if our society is based on the idea that we're all individuals equally valuable and it doesn't matter what your skin color is as a, as a, as a principle, and if you tear that down and you say some animals are more equal than others, mm-hmm. right, then you end up in a different society. It's not going to be the same. Well, right? and we know and what those what societies I'm, I'm look to... like, right? Those societies right. have existed well, for all of history. The, the, right. the Enlightenment is new. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and so this is what I'm trying to wake people up to is you can't hide in a corner and expect things to, that won't last. They will find that corner where you are and they will come for you and they will take up the one thing. They will take the one thing away from you that you can't live without. Because yeah. as Kerry said right at the beginning, you will never be pure enough for these people ever, right. ever. Right. It's strange because in that Facebook thread you were talking about, um, I've noticed a difference between there are a lot of people contacting me who are afraid and maybe some of them are the people who think or hope that this will all blow over. Um, but, but they're at least, um, they're grateful for people who are speaking against it. And a lot of them are trying to come to terms with their own fear and get over it in, in, in small ways, you know, they're starting to have, um, an actual difficult conversation with someone in their, their life. Um, or they're, they're starting to post more about this or, or in whatever way they're, they're tackling it. But then there's this other, I would say it's a minority of the people who've, who've, express their fear to me there's this other minority of people who are afraid they don't buy into this but they have this sort of resentment towards people who are speaking out against it and like a anger there and i and that's those are the people who are really interesting to me because i think it's almost uh the act of the act of someone out the act of you speaking out for example makes them angry because they're deep down that it's almost maybe they feel guilty that they're not doing something and they're not addressing the fear. I don't know. That personality type is interesting to me. And, and it yeah, actually makes why? me think I just of all uh, those people. <laughs> you, you posted about, I wanted to ask you about some of the costs of speaking. And I'm a person who believes the costs of not speaking are much greater, but can you talk a little bit about the, uh, fallout, I guess, of being someone who does criticize this belief system. I know you posted about a friend, a comedy friend, who had told you um, they were they were on you know in the fight for marginalized people, 
And then when you started speaking about this, they unfriended you and regularly attack you. Is that yeah. something you encounter, have encountered a lot or? Well, I mean, maybe we should start going back to, to the, the contract that I turned down. So when mm -hmm. I turned that contract down, um, how do you think the comedy industry reacted to me turning it down? Oh, I'm sure I'm they sure you were lauded, I'm sure, and given awards. For <laughs> right. Well, I actually kind of, and this is this is going to give you and your viewers an indication of how genuinely stupid and naive I am. I actually thought I would be lauded. <laughs> right. That's how stupid and naive I am, because I was like, we're comedians, right? Like our job is to like push boundaries and, and to, to maybe go where a straight talking person can't go and and like that's our job right like we go on stage and we say these crazy things and sometimes they're just stupid and funny and sometimes we're actually making a point that no one else can make because we are we are the core jester right yeah and so like i'm like you know i'm i'm helping our, us the core jesters like get a better deal here right i'm trying to say let's not allow us to be trampled on let's al allow us to have our space to speak um Turns out not everybody thinks that way in comedy, apparently. Uh, so within literally hours, uh, I was found myself on a radio show with a, a well-known feminist comedian. Uh, it's a bit of an option. I was going to say, is that but, a thing? Um, yeah. <laughs> Those uh, were my clients, Carter. Oh. <laughs> no wonder you don't have a job anymore. <laughs> so uh, called Kate Smirthway, um, who who called me alt right and a Nazi and like this this and this is how how uh, a lot of people in the comedy industry reacted. Uh, the the biggest comedy critic in this country uh, wrote a whole piece about how um, I, the only reason I turned down this contract is because I must have wanted to be racist. Right. The biggest comedy critic. It's not some random person, right? Um, and later when I did uh, my show, All Will That Ends Well, uh, he, he talked about how I'm, quote, unquote, challenging the liberal consensus, right? But, so by talking about freedom of speech, I was challenging the liberal consensus. They use that word incorrectly all the time. Right. Like, yeah. how liberal is your consensus exactly, <laughs> right? Um, so, yeah, uh, the the truth is that uh, the people who um, speak out against this stuff will likely be driven out of whatever profession that they're in, particularly if it's a profession that tends to attract quote unquote open minded liberal people. Right. If you're in a quote unquote open minded liberal profession, those people almost certainly punish you for having your opinion. Right. Uh, having said that. I don't know that that is a particularly high price to pay because if you genuinely believe what you believe and you understand where this is going then in my opinion the cost to you personally of not speaking out is far worse which is to live an inauthentic life yeah and i i believe that if you are this, not everybody's like this, but if you are the sort of person that can't not feel what you feel about it, then the, the cost of not speaking out about it and not doing something about it will in the long term be far, far worse, far, far worse. Because sure, you'll be forced out of comedy to some extent, 
but you'll find your way you'll find friends you'll find like-minded people the three of us having this conversation we're all finding our way in a different direction and uh, the truth is that the way that the comedy industry was going it's become so woke that uh, simply by virtue of in their mind being white uh, and having a penis I was highly unlikely to get anywhere anyway just just by virtue of those two things because of the way the comedy industry now works you have to be from quote unquote an oppressed background for to get any tv opportunities in this country right if you're not already on tv you're not going to get on tv is basically how it works there, there might be one or two exceptions but they're like the token now you know what i mean yeah uh so uh, yes I, I i to a large extent i've lost that but with now with trigonometry i have a much bigger audience and i can perform comedy to my audience you know so you will always find another way, but you'll never find a way to explain to your children why, why, why you drink so much, right? You'll never find a way to explain that. Because I'm, glad, I'm glad you're saying this because uh, this is one of those things where, you know, either you're acknowledging that there is actually a cost, um, and yet... It and 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 like you said earlier, it's no longer hyperbolic. It's pretty obvious to see that this is a battle for the survival of Western civilization. And for you to say, "Yeah, but I didn't want to rock the boat at work and and lose some friends," you know, uh, you're really you're riding on the coattails of Western civilization. You're you're uh, you're enjoying all of the benefits of being in a civilization built by Western values and standing by passively as they're actively torn down by people. Um, and I don't think that's healthy for your psychology. If you know that's what's going on and you're choosing that, I don't know how that's good for your long-term psychological health. And not just your own. I mean, Kerry, you, you brought it up, and I think it's a super important point, which is you're getting people contacting you saying, well, what do I do about my children being indoctrinated mm -hmm. with this stuff at school, right? Well, Let's say you don't have kids now. Let's say 10 years from now you do have kids and they're about to go to school. And they're being told that if they're black, that this is how they must think, right? You're a black person. This is, you're oppressed. And if they're white, they're being told that they are imbued with original sin for which they must perpetually atone, right? Whether you're black or white, do you want those outcomes for your children? And how are you going to deal with it then? Because there's not going to be anywhere to run, Right. Where are these non-woke schools exactly? They're all, most of the schools around the country, your country, my country, everywhere, they're all, they're all imbued with this ideology now. And so what are you going to do then? Okay, you kept quiet, you made your money, you made sure you could pay for your children's college, you've sent your child off to college, and now she's come back with pink hair and a new gender. Right? Is, is, is that, is that, that what worth you wanted? It? Right. Yeah. Was, that, was that why you were keeping quiet? this isn't going away unless people do something about it and everybody's going to pay the price uh, and you know and look guys i mean the question you are you you're bringing up now is exactly the question that's on everyone's mind you know we just had brett weinstein on trigonometry and we'll be putting that interview out this sunday and i said the same thing to him man it's like i look like you yeah you're telling people they need to be brave but you know, aren't you being unrealistic? You, you as an evolutionary biologist are demanding people sacrifice themselves for the greater good. That's not how people evolved, right? And he was saying, well, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you need to sacrifice something for your own benefit down the line because this is going to be way worse if you don't do it now. 
and I yeah. and I I believe that fundamentally. I believe that that is a yeah. great way of putting it. Yeah. That's that you're you're actually it is it is um, selfish in a good way I think to sacrifice something now, so that there is something you have something later. Right. Selfish in the way that you use it sometimes, Carter, in the good selfish way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm all about long-term rational selfishness, and and yeah, and I think uh, the truth is when you when you uh, p- part of what makes humans humans is their their ability to long-term plan, right? It's it's not you're not reacting in the immediate moment to stimuli. You're planning. You're like, oh, we need plant crops now and work so that you know, we can eat later. And like that, that's, that's part of using your rational mind. In fact, it's, it's probably one of the most important parts of survival. So this is just like that. Take some, take some heat now, because otherwise, your life's going to be much worse later if you don't fight this effectively. And I think, you know, Carrie, you brought up the purity spiral stuff at the beginning. Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that, uh, you being passively silent, you still get shot. You might not be the first person to get shot, but you're like you're on the list in the once we reach the totalitarian hellhole uh, of of whatever the woke vision is, uh, you're you're still on the list of of people to be executed just because you kind of kept your head down and mouth shut doesn't mean you're going to be saved from this. I don't. Again, that might sound hyperbolic, but I don't think it is. Well, this is actually a really good point as well that you bring up that I probably should have mentioned myself is like, guys, it ain't the 15th century anymore. They aren't burning us at the stake. Mm-hmm. Right? No one's burning you at the stake. Right. No one is tearing your tongue out with with metal, whatever they I'm not. Yeah, exactly. I'm not that well educated on that part of it, but um, <laughs> on the whole torturing thing. But um, they're not doing that. Right. No one, no one's coming to take your life away, not yet, right? So, so you know, if people, if people were prepared to resist that sort of stuff before, and they were being burned at the stake, why are you sitting and and, and talking about, oh well, I might lose a friend or two? Right. It's really not. It's not the 15th century, right? So, whatever concerns you have, you've got to know that in relation to the entirety of human history, you're not being thrown to the lions here. Do you think people and, are just in denial? Side of it. Do you think people are just in denial that this is going to happen? It's like they're just hoping that if they close their eyes and and stop paying attention, that they'll wake up in ten years and things will be back to normal. I think that there's certainly that sliver of people. I think it's shrinking because the last few months have shown people that you know first they're gonna they're gonna talk like this whole bending the knee thing maybe less of a thing in the United States, but it's much more so here in the UK and elsewhere because we have much more of a tradition of, um, you know, you bend the knee for certain things. You get on your knee to be knighted by the queen in the UK, right? Mm. Uh, You might get on your knee to propose to your future wife, that sort of thing, right? But, But also we have a feudal history, which in which getting on your knee was a sign of submission. Right. Right. It was a sign of you saying, you are my Lord. You have power over me. Right. And it implies a a, a force disparity. Right. And, and a status disparity. It's saying I'm up here. You are down there. And so a lot of people are now seeing in a very visceral way what this ideology is all about. Right. 
It's about power. It's about saying you're going to get on your knee. And initially we're going to say, well, it's a sign of solidarity with our mm. movement. Right. And then we're going to say, as we, we had someone on TV just yesterday having this because Lewis Hamilton, the, the black Formula One driver, he went on his knee to, to, to express his support for BLM and his team didn't. Right. Or some people in his team refused. And you had people on TV saying this is hugely problematic. They must all get on their knee. Wow. Right. Mm. So first it's going to be show solidarity. Then it's going to be get on your fucking knees. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and so people are starting to wake up to that. So that portion that you're talking about, Carter, people who are going, well, this will all blow over. I think that is shrinking rapidly because well, that's good. the sort of in a way. Yeah. Yeah. It is Can good. you um, I think people are, are curious about what is different about the people who are who seem to have been inoculated against this ideology or did not fall into it um, and also for people like myself who did fall into it how they came out of it but what is it about you and your background or you know your characteristics what do you think what do you think it is that made it different because you were expecting as you said the comedy community these are comedians therefore free speech right they're going to like the fact that they're going to agree with the fact that I'm not signing this contract, but so many comedians have fallen into this belief system. What is it about you that helped you see through it, do you think? Well, I'd say two things. I had a domineering father, or he was domineering when I was growing up. Okay. Uh, so him and I got into a lot of arguments, uh, and I learned from that period of my life that uh, I'm not prepared to have someone who's an authority tell me what to do if I don't think it's the right thing to do. Um, and I get on great with my dad, and I think partly it's because I am the one person that was not prepared to take a shit, you know? <laughs> okay. Uh, and we have a great relationship now because of it, to some extent. Uh, but when I was a teenager, it was very much unstoppable force, me to movable object, you know? Um, so I, I imagine part of it is also genetic. Uh, and the other part of it is that my grandfather, and this was what my show, All Will That Ends Well, was all about is my grandfather was a dissident in the Soviet Union uh, who in 1979 uh, made a, a, a comment about so the Soviet Union's foreign policy. He said that the Soviet Union was wrong to invade Afghanistan. And the next day he was arrested by the KGB, uh, interrogated and fired from his job. His wife was fired from her job. Both their children, uh, that's my dad and my aunt, were kicked out of university. From, for this comment, and he made this comment in private to, to one other person. He didn't say it on TV or on the radio. He didn't go and do a protest. He just said it in private, and within 24 hours, he was arrested. His whole family was in trouble, right? Oh. Uh, and eventually, he was forced to leave the country, um, and that's how he ended up in the UK, and then my parents sent me to school here because he was already here. So I kind of had an example of someone in my life who um who was prepared to pay the price you know and uh, so i kind of always knew that some open mic comedians being upset with me wasn't going to be the worst thing that ever happened to me you know do you i i mean i find i'd love to i assume you've got contacts from uh maybe in your community you've got people from former soviet states more than we do here in the U.S. It's been my experience, and I'm wondering if you have the same experience, that actually a lot of people who lived under 
communism tend to be the most able to stand up to this kind of stuff. Is that just my perception or do you find the same thing? No, it's 100% right. Uh, and the reason is that we've seen the shit before. We know where it leads. Uh, some animals are more equal than others. We've read that book, right? <laughs> we've read that book. And we've not only read that book, we've seen it in real life. We've heard the stories. We've talked to our grandparents and great-grandparents and heard their stories. We've seen what happens in societies where having the wrong opinion gets you punished. It's not new to us. There's nothing new about it. This is the thing with this ideology. There's nothing new about it. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay, they found a different way of looking at things. It's no longer about the proletariat versus the bourgeois. Great. It's now white people against black people or whatever other identity groups yeah Yeah, right they found a different way to split people apart and to say your enemies and oppressors versus but fundamentally it's all about oppressor versus oppressed that's why people talk about neo-marxism that's where it comes from the the marxists in europe in the 1950s and 60s and whatever they kind of realized the people in the west weren't going to go for the working class must overthrow and eat the rich because that, that's not how people in America think. People in America think, well, one day I'm going to be rich, so why would I eat the rich now, right? That's how people think. So they needed to come up with some other way. And that's where they got onto race, and that's where they got onto sexuality and gender and all of this stuff. And, and I think you know, that they tried with men and women, uh, and they couldn't do it because... At a biological level, no matter what you do and how much you create a, a battle of the sexes or all this bullshit, men and women are still fundamentally going to have to find a way to work together because we yes. get together, we have children and whatever, right? And so you can tell women about the patriarchy and whatever, but they still want a man. They're still biologically attracted to one, right? And they know this. I'm so glad you're making this point because when I was in this ideology, a social justice warrior or whatever... I remember having conversations about this, but see, the way they talk about it is they say women are inherently complicit in a patriarchal, in their own patriarchal oppression in a way that black people are not because of heterosexuality, because women are sleep, literally sleeping with the enemy, but that it's easier to radicalize um, anyone who's like, like a racial uh, group than it is to radicalize a group based on sex. In, right. Anyway, you're you're exactly right. So, so you can't point. get men and women to hate each other enough. You, right. you can get you can get the crazy, bitter, depressed, uh, mentally unstable women to hate men, and you can get the crazy, lonely, mentally unstable men to hate women. You can do that, but they are the, the edges of the distribution. Everybody else is right bang in the middle, going, "What the hell are you talking about? I love my husband. I love my kids. I want to bring up a family." Right? That that's 90% of people. So you can't do that. But race is the weapon that they found that works for dividing mm-hmm. people. Uh, and uh, and so it's the same thing. We've seen it before. That's why we're so so inoculated against it. Because we're like, yeah, well, we know what happens when you start dividing people. Yeah. We know what happens. I mean, do you think, I think they have actually had some success with the, the sex war. If you just look at um, how family stability has dropped and you've got, you know, divorce rates are up, single parenthood is up. Um, It seems like 
you're right, they can't actually eradicate it completely because there's biological drivers there. Um, and they did have a movement where they tried to push women to be lesbians, probably for the reasons that Carrie outlined, so they would stop sleeping with the enemies, right? But uh, they've had some success there. It just wasn't total enough, oh. I guess. To right, it wasn't total enough. And they knew, they, we knew this. We were like, it's, it's uh, hard to... The, the way they speak about it is different, of course, because, again, they say it's like a, a complicitness that they benef- women benefit from their own oppression in these ways. And therefore, it's going to be hard to it, you're, you're you're spot on about the best way of dividing people. Yeah. So they found it. Uh, they found it. But equally, what I like about what's happening is and you'll probably be way better educated on this than I am is. They, they've overplayed their hand massively. Mm-hmm. And I've always said that the trans thing is what's going to break intersectionality uh, because most people will be like, okay, Black Lives Matter. Sure, I believe Black Lives Matter. Great. Okay, we're all a little bit racist. Yeah, I mean, it's probably true. We're all a little bit racist, right? Like, we, we all have prejudices. Okay, I can go along with that. Uh, men and women, women historically badly treated. Absolutely. Of course they have. Maybe, maybe some of that still happens. Okay, I can get behind that. Uh, your teenager or your seven-year-old, your seven-year-old says to you, oh, mommy, I feel like a boy today. And now you've got to give them hormones? Ooh. That's where you start to lose people quite rapidly. Mm-hmm. Right? And you're seeing that now. And, of course, some of it is a matter of time. So what you're going to start to see over the next five years is a massive wave of detransitioners. Yeah. I and think that so is going to blow this whole thing apart. Yeah, That is going to blow this thing apart. You're already starting to see people talk about it, and it's just going to go bigger and bigger and bigger. And people at some point are going to go, what the hell have we done? But the insidious thing about what you were talking about, just even for all the other things, the, oh, there's a little bit of racism, there's a little bit of bias here, there's some sexism, there's like... And can people can nod and be like, okay, yeah, there's, yeah, maybe we should do something about that. There's, there's a little bit of this, and right, they take a grain of truth in all these areas. They're not starting from nothing. They're taking a grain of truth that reasonable people can nod their heads at and go, yes, I see that there is some sexism in this area, whatever it is. Um, but then they leverage that using magic math into all of Western civilization is systemically patriarchal oppression, right? And the it's like jumping the shark. They're just, and you've got, you know, Carrie shared this the other day. You've got the Smithsonian in the United States sharing like, uh, logic is racist. It's a, it's a white tool. Math is racist. Showing up on time is racist. Like it's, it's exactly what actually white supremacists would say. I mean, they've gone that far. Um, but, you know, it's, they seem to be getting away with it because they, they hook people with this little, like, oh, yes, there is some inequality in the world or there's some bad things that, you know, we're not perfect as a society, obviously. And and therefore, let's just roll back the Enlightenment seems to be the conclusion. Yes, yes. But but I, I do think that that will come back to bite them. Uh, I don't think that the majority of people will go along with it. Uh, provided that there's a strong and credible opposition to that movement, uh, which is what you and I are, and Francis and uh, you know lots of lots of other people are trying to uh, foment and create. So I know you're not doing comedy anymore. However, 
you are still a very funny human. I'm sure you can't contain that, even though you're not doing stand-up right now. Can you uh, talk a little about the role of humor in combating this, since we're talking about combating it? Why is humor such a good tool? Well, it bypasses the conscious brain. Like, if something is funny, it's funny, right? You can't not laugh at it, I think. I, I, you know, I've never really thought of myself as a comedian. This is something Andrew Doyle and I often talk about, is both of us think of ourselves as satirists in the, the point, uh, and he quotes someone I can never remember, uh, and I'm always jealous that he can, but there's this brilliant quote uh, about the difference between uh, comedy and satire. And comedy is uh, kind and pessimistic, and satire is angry and optimistic. And what, what, what I mean by that is comedy is accepting of the way that things are and tries to make it okay, right? Things are messed up, but it's okay. Here's a joke about how what the aging process does to your body, right? Because you can't get away from aging, right? So we'll be kind about that because there's nothing we can do, right? Um, it's about accepting reality as it is and saying, I accept it. Here's the funny thing that we can all relate to as a process. But it's pessimistic, you're saying? The, yes, because yeah. it's okay. saying that nothing can change. You can't do anything about it. Okay. Satire is angry and it's optimistic. It's saying things are messed up and they can be better. And I'm going to use humor as a weapon to drive this point to where I want it to go, to change society for the better. Right. And that's always been my thing with, with satire is it's pointing out all the stuff that is wrong that I believe can change for the better, right? Um, and, and I think if you speak to Andrew, you know, his Twitter personality, Titania McGrath, is very much based around that. You know, it's based around the idea that if I highlight enough how ridiculous this way of thinking is, enough people will see that it's ridiculous and move away from it. Mm. You know, uh, so th that's where I see the role of comedy is to is to say that it's a naked emperor. The emperor is naked. Yeah. You know, uh, and to find a way of doing that. So, and I think it was um, George Bernard Shaw who said, if you want to tell people the truth, make them laugh. Otherwise, they'll kill you. You know, so I think that <laughs> that's how I've always thought about it. I like that. That's a great distinction. Yeah, I, I really I hadn't thought about that distinction, but it's great. Can I ask you about um, you? You actually defended—I don't know if "defended" is the right word—but John Cleese tweeted. John Cleese tweeted about a London becoming, quote, I think, less English or whatever. And this was interpreted as a racist statement, and and you explained why it wasn't a racist statement. Um, but there is a one thing that I've noticed, and I just—I kind of want your your thoughts on this there's this there's been this uh push to it, it sounds like it's tolerance but there's just been this push to equate cultures as if there's just all cultures are morally relative and you're a bigot if you don't just accept one culture that happens to throw gays off buildings just as much as this other culture that thinks that's abhorrent and any any kind of chauvinism towards Western culture, towards the Enlightenment values, is somehow considered uh, the same in the same category as racism. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, with John Cleese, he said that London had become less English. Um, and I was like, well, 42% of the people who live in London are, like me, born abroad. 
I'd imagine that that would make it less English, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not rocket science, right? Like if you had a, a glass of orange juice and then you replaced half of it with water, would it become <laughs> less orange juice? Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, that's not racism against oranges. It's just a fact of reality. Um, yeah, look, the way we talk about all this stuff is just completely... Uh, it's it's crazy. I mean, I don't know. I don't know wh where you start with all this stuff. And we, you know, it's particularly interesting in the UK because we have a completely different cultural context to you guys, right? So if we talk about, let's say, the black community in America or the African American community, you you could say that you know the overwhelming majority of the people who are black in America are the descendants of slaves who were brought over from Africa. I I, I would imagine that's accurate. Is that accurate? Mm -hmm. I don't know, but yeah. I would I would, I would accept so. that. Yeah, right. sure, probably. So if you talk about the African-American community, that's broadly speaking a reasonable uh, categorization. You can talk about those that group as having similar values, similar ways of thinking, similar history, etc. Right. Like as a group of people, that's a pretty reasonable approximation yep. in the UK. That is completely untrue. So a lot of the people who are black in this country uh, most of the vast majority of them were not brought to the UK as slaves, first of all, right? The vast majority of them came here in the 60s, and a lot of them came from the Caribbean, from the former imperial colonies, and a lot of them also came directly from Africa, right? They were never slaves, uh, they were never taken to the Caribbean, uh, and those two groups of people could not be more different if you, if you tried, right? They have different experiences, they have different educational outcomes, they have different earnings, they have different cultures, they vote for different parties, right? All the, all the, uh, the MPs for the Conservative Party, which is the right-wing party, the centre-right party in the, in the UK, they're all come, they all come from African backgrounds, whereas Afro-Caribbean people are much more likely to vote, to vote for the left-wing party, right? So Africans are m much more socially conservative, right? That they have bigger, like you, you could, you can look at it in a hundred different ways. Those two groups of people are completely different, and yet they're called the black community, right? right. We have this other thing called the BAME community, which is black Asian ethnic minority, minority ethnic, right? So in that community, you've got black people from all the different countries. You've got Pakistani Muslims and Indian Hindus in one group. These people are fighting a nuclear war. Right. In back home, right? But they're in one group here, yeah. right? So the way we talk about all this stuff is moronic. It's absolutely moronic, and it's we it. import a lot of it from you guys. So thank you very much. Yeah, hey, you're welcome. It's inadequate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's well, inadequate. It's, it's inaccurate. It's because their categorization ultimately is uh, white and non-white. That's that's the categorization. So all those groups that you just mentioned share the non-white attribute. Um, and if you're going to tear down Western civilization, part of their target is uh, the, I guess, the what they view as the, I'm going to use race in quotes even, what they view as like the, quote, race of people responsible for it, which I think in their definition would be like heterosexual Christian white men. That's th those those are the evil and everyone else is in some kind of category of something. But even if you frame it through the lens of oppression, and as you guys know, according to this ideology, if you do well, then you're the oppressor. And if you do badly, you're the oppressed, right? A lot of these groups don't fit that bill at all, right? Western, West African 
particularly girls, but boys and girls, do incredibly well in education in this country, right? They're black. They're not oppressed at all. They are, quote unquote, the oppressors. Indians in this country do incredibly well and in America, in, way better than white people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so all uh, Jews, I mean, Jews are the biggest problem of all, right? Because they're tiny oh, minority. You're practically white, well. man. Right, exactly. Uh, worse than white, because uh, we, we dare not be oppressed as a minority, right? So um, th- a lot of these so-called coalitions, they're going to start to fracture. And we're seeing it already here. So, for example, we have a lot of very successful um, brown people in this country, from uh, particularly from Indian backgrounds, some from Pakistani backgrounds as well. And following the BLM stuff, they are no longer part of the oppressed coalition, they're now super coconuts because they have the wrong political opinions and all the rest of it. So even that is now fracturing. The people of color label is falling apart because some people of color are more equal than others. Yes. You will always be more equal than There's always someone who's more equal than other people. Yeah. That's what's amazing about how it falls apart though, because I'm starting to see now the uh, academic social justice warriors, the people who are in academia who, who kind of come up with the justifications for the the explanations for the hypocrisies or for the contradictions in the belief system. I've now seen them start to put forward the idea that um, that you can be black, but not really black. That black is is more than your race, that it's a set of ideas, that it's an ideology, which is kind of what we've been saying all along that this is a belief this is an this is an ideology it's not about it at the end of the day it's actually not about the things they say it's about so that's fascinating to me what you said about like some people of color more equal than others because we're i think we're starting to see a lot more of that where there's this weird um uh for an ideology that sells itself entirely on we are speaking for the marginalized groups and like in the case of race we are speaking for black people but if you don't speak the tenets of the belief system, then it's suddenly like, no, 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 we're <laughs> you're not you're not part of the marginalized community anymore right. that we were talking if, about. If yeah. you don't vote for Biden, you ain't black. That, yeah. that sums it up, right? That's that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, but I'm curious. I mean, you talk about you being part of this system. What do you think it's about? What the ideology is about? It's, yeah. So the the way I most often describe it is is like you mentioned the Marxist roots. It, it helped me to see it as uh, as an, an evolved form of Marxism, not evolved as in better, but different, a new kind of Marxism. Mutated, maybe. might be mutated, mutated Marxism that's based around power and identity rather than around wealth and class. So they say the best way to look at the world is as a struggle between identity groups for power rather than as a struggle between different class groups for wealth. And so they are like the Marxists, you know, they're trying to redistribute power, not wealth. Um, And they do that by treating you as a member of these identity groups rather than as an individual. They judge your power, the amount of power that you have as being based on which boxes you check off and you can it's funny because um carter and i've been talking about this since he first interviewed me and we started the show was um i told him i think i think that was the first time you'd heard it right carter that when someone passes away social justice warriors will say rest in power 
Um, yes, I had and it's not really heard creepy. that at all. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> now that now that the ideology's gone so mainstream, you're I'm starting to hear it a lot more. It's not just some weird fringe group of people now. With Representative Lewis passing away, for example, we saw like a whole round of people, a lot of blue check marks, like elite figures, but also just random everyday people who are now saying rest in power. And rest in power, even when I was a social justice warrior, used to kind of creep me out, and I couldn't really put my finger on why. But now looking back at it, it's because it is revealing, to me anyway, I think it's revealing about what's at the core of this belief system. It's about power. That's what they worship. That's what the whole thing is structured around, is about getting, attaining power. And so, of course, when someone dies, it's, I, they view it as a sign of respect and something positive to say rest in power. Is it sound, to me, I'm like, that sounds awful. I hope that you would wish me peace once I've passed away. <laughs> want to be resting in power please let me rest in peace <laughs> but uh but yeah that's i hope that that that's that what makes I, perfect sense yeah, yeah that makes perfect sense to me. but when i was in it i viewed it as honest this is going to sound dumb to anyone who has never been in it before and, and has always been critical of it but i thought it was liberalism i thought it was progressivism i thought it was about ending racism and sexism I thought it was about feminism. And so it was a slow build to where, you know, you, you accept certain tenets of this belief system one at a time. And then it helps you to swallow the bigger things you have to swallow later on. And so they, they as you know, they control language. Um, they redefine racism and sexism, which helps you to do the mental gymnastics required to be able to go forth and advocate on behalf of treating people differently on the basis of race and sex. You can do that because they've redefined those words. Um, but uh, for me, once it got to the point of, uh, in the 2016, once I saw that, oh, okay, I'm being asked now to swallow censorship and uh, the initiation of force, like violence against people that don't agree with this. And that was, I guess, a bridge too far for me, but it took me a while. I mean, it wasn't like I just snapped out of it because I had been, I accepted all this stuff slowly for two decades. Um, but that for me was like the, if they had started there, I would have never gotten into it, you know? It's like the boiling frog. You turn yeah. it up a degree at a time until you get there. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think the two, if I was going to pick like two beliefs that they convince you of early on, and Carrie, I'm curious about about your reaction to this, but one of them is they they talk all in terms of collectives. Like everything is, is talked about in groups. Every problem, every every moral argument everything is about group versus group there's never any individual there's never like reference to individuals it's always individuals as members of groups which is foundationally uh very different than the enlightenment and the other thing that they they seem to do is they get people to view all relationships as win-lose rather than the possibility of a win-win relationship ever between two individuals and so once you have those kind of underlying um premises established you can use fancy postmodernism language to kind of justify a whole bunch of stuff and people don't really question it because they've accepted those two underlying premises without ever being really explicit about, hey, these are the things we're accepting, let's move from here. They just kind of work them in at the very beginning and then they can manipulate you. Um, at least that's my impression, I don't know. 
that resonates with me. I definitely, yeah. like I said, it's a collectivist kind of belief system. Um, Constantine, can you leave us with some words of hope? <laughs> words of hope. I, well, I don't know if they're words of hope, but um, there is a there's something that I that's been on my mind for the last few months, and maybe it's a sign of that I have hope, uh, which is at some point we're all going to have to start thinking about how do we come to back together at the end of all this? How do we heal our society? How do we bridge the gaps that have been opened up? How do we close those gaps? How do we heal those divisions? Um, because in the same way that social justice warriors are fighting on one side, that has forced a lot of people, and I, I would say us included, to be fighting on the other side. We are fighting to resist what they're doing. And what that creates is a battle. Mm. But at some point, and I hope that point is soon, but it may not be soon, but whenever it comes, there will be a point when there's going to need to be some kind of truth and reconciliation process uh, where we all come together and we go, look, you guys committed some war crimes and we committed some war crimes and that's just what it was. We all went crazy for a bit. And now let's put that behind us and unite again around something. That's one of the reasons that the thing that I'm most in favor and the thing that I most oppose uh, is the destruction of, of national identity. Uh, it's the attempt to say, as people do in this country, well, there's no such thing as British values or British identity, you know, or, or there is such a thing as British values and the British values are racism and white supremacy, right? Or the American dream is no longer about, you know, uh, having your, making the most of your life, right? Having the opportunity to un be unimpeded in pursuing liberty and the pursuit of happiness, right? Um, that's why those things are so important and destroying them are so dangerous because if you don't have that, and you have a multi-ethnic society, that's, that's not a good place to be, right? Mm -hmm. Because that is the only way you hold together a multi-ethnic society, is people mm -hmm. having some kind of overarching identity where you can go, it doesn't matter if you're black or white, we're all American. Well, what you're talking about you is kind of a shared right? culture, right? I mean, that's, right. that's kind of what you're saying. It's a shared culture and... Uh, I don't know. Partly, is that but possible? it's also partly. It, well, you see, I don't think it is a shared culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, but it's partly culture. But I think you can be a Hispanic American, who who speaks English with a, a Latin accent, if you like, mm -hmm. right? Uh, who looks Latino, who mm -hmm. has uh, the culture of whatever country you or your parents may have come from, and yet still be an American and be part of the American dream, right? And you can you can have all those things, but you can still believe in freedom, you know, the right to pursue your happiness, uh, whatever else it is that uh, forms the American identity. Right. You may have a slightly different culture. You may believe in in uh, you may be more religious than other people, you, whatever it might be. Right. So you can have a, a different culture as long as you subscribe to those overarching values. Right. Right. And it's the same here in the UK. Now, 
the moment you take that national identity out of the picture, and particularly if you encourage people into what has been called multiculturalism, which is really multi-ghettoism, right, which is saying to people, oh, you're this, well, you stay with your people, and you're that, you stay with your people, and there is no thing that binds us all together. You're, you're going to be in a very, very dark place very quickly if you do that. And so the question for me is, how do we restore our sense of common values and shared identity? Because that's what you need. That is the only solution to this problem, is to say, yes, Kerry's a woman, Carter's a man. Yes, Constantine is dark-skinned and you guys are light-skinned. But at the end of the day, we all believe in X, Y, and Z. Right. Well, and that's and that that's is the, the most important thing. Yeah. Right. And that is the enlightenment. So that's what we need to bring back. And I think those of us on this side of the conversation have to keep in mind of that Nietzsche quote, mm. which is those who fight monsters should see to it that they do not become monsters themselves, because we are staring into the abyss every day. And it's inevitable that the abyss stares back into us. And so what we've got to do is retain our humanity as much as possible and to be open to you know people like you carrie who 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 are ready to 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 open their eyes and to mm. to shift and to say actually i don't believe this stuff anymore uh and that's why whenever i'm talking with people who who feel very strongly about the problems that social justice is creating i'm always saying to them that if you're in a war, you've got to make sure, yes, you want to win the war, but it's helpful not to commit any war crimes in the process. You can't let it change you. Right. Because then what alternative are you offering anyway? Like you said, you're becoming the monster you fight. I'm so glad you mentioned that quote. That was one of the first, that quote stuck with me when I first started waking up because I was able to see how my old ideology had made me monstrous. But it's continued to stick with me for that reason, because you, I could become monstrous on this side of this battle easily. And that's why people in our space, we have got to practice what we preach. And I don't see enough of it. And I, I, and I call people out on it deliberately, because if you talk about cancel culture, which people do, then you cannot come to, to trigonometry and go, oh, you interviewed this guy I didn't like, unsubscribe. <laughs> Don't fucking right. do that. Right. Don't do that. Right. You want to unsubscribe? Completely respect that. Do it quietly. But don't try and influence me by punishing me for speaking to the wrong person. That's cancel culture. Yeah. Right? Don't do that. If you talk about the importance of forgiving people and, again, not having cancel culture where you can never recover from a mistake, forgive people for making a mistake on the other side. Yeah. Right? And, and whatever it is that you, you, you claim the other side does badly, you've got to be super, super, super good on that stuff, right? So forgiveness, uh, cancel culture, whatever it might, discrimination, whatever apologies, etc. Whatever it is that you say they do badly, you've got to be super good on that. And that's yeah. what I think. And that's how you maintain your humanity and your, your moral standing and the ability to, at the end of it all, who do you want to be? Do you want to be Nelson Mandela? Or do you want to be a terrorist who blew something up and never recovered from that? That's always the question for me. I don't want to be a terrorist. You know, it's very easy 
to to destroy things, to blow things up. I could spend all day on Twitter or wherever it is just making fun of stupid woke people. And, and, and it's fun, and I do it sometimes, right? But at the end of the day, this has got to be a project for healing our society. And all of us have to play our part. Yeah. Thank you the so much. The sermon is over, guys. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Well, I was just, I was just thinking about how. Um, uh, so when when I, wh- what you're saying, it resonates so much with me, and I kind of when I left this ideology, I was like, you know, I have to make sure my behavior reflects my beliefs, and so I had sort of some ideas about some rules, for lack of a better word, to govern my behavior, and one of those is I didn't engage in name calling online. I mean, I would name call in the third person if talking about a public figure or something. But if talking to someone, I did not say you, Constantin, are a sheep, you know, or whatever. And then um, when the lockdowns first started here in the States, I allowed my anger to just animate me for a couple of weeks. I started breaking my own rules. Um, I started name calling people I was having t- discussions with, and it was really that th- that quote came back to me because it was it was making me monstrous, and I had to like set that aside. It wasn't working for me. It wasn't healthy for me, let alone the people I was trying to talk to, you know. Um, so I, I if I, I just really I'm glad you said that because that's that's what I believe. I get it. I get it when people try and. Uh, make a point by like if you know sometimes people on the right you see they go they engage in cancel culture by trying to cancel someone on the left who sets and they try to get them fired or whatever to say like you know you should I, I understand why they're doing it they're trying to say you know your rules should apply to you too let me hold your feet to the fire and I completely understand why they do it I just think it's destructive at the right. end of the day well there's a I reason think- that an eye for an eye got updated we had like a little 2.0 right in christianity remember yeah. that we went from the old testament to the new testament that's yeah. why we did it right and i'm not christian by the way i'm just just saying you know the christian values and they uh they're the foundation of western i mean I'm, you're not allowed to say this but they are right uh they're the foundation of western civilization so there's a reason we went from an eye for an eye to turn the other cheek right yeah. there's a reason for and the reason is we know what an eye for an eye does, right? So yes, I understand perfectly well that instinct. And when I when I'm saying we ought to be better than that, I'm saying that to myself. As just like you, I probably break that rule once a week, mm-hmm. right? But but we we've, we've just all got to do our best not to be that way. Uh, and it's hard. Uh, yeah. And it's hard when when you're faced every day with the hypocrisy. I mean some of the stuff that's happening now is so inconsistent and hypocritical. I almost like I've actually stopped expecting them not to have double standards. Now I just go, Oh, the double standards again are fair enough. You know, like (laughs) it's just like, it's just how it is. Right. You just, you just accept it as a reality, you know, it's uh, so I don't, I just don't know that it helps to, to go play by your own rules. I think what we need to do is go, these rules are bad. We shouldn't be playing by these rules, yes. right? Well, you need um, to give people something to see as an alternative, right? And yeah. one, I think one of the dangers you're talking about is like, as the, the left has become more and more radical, you've also seen a radicalization on the right. 
and you've seen the the rights version of cancel culture and we need you know but that's where you get you get McCarthyism and you get you and you eventually you get Augusto Pinochet out of that right it's a response to the leftist authoritarianism and our job all of us our job is to show people that hey there's an alternative which is Let's get back to enlightenment values. Let's get back to the foundations of Western civilization. And this is the way that we can be. And we're happier and more successful. And um, things go better for everyone. It's more just. And you don't have to live in this uh, false dichotomy that's being built. Because actually, I think the left loves the false dichotomy. They want you to think, well, if you're not with us, like, you're one of these crazy Nazis. Obviously, that's what they want you to think. (laughs) So... Well, it's one of the things that people fundamentally misunderstand about me. A lot of people, including people who like and support me, think that I am against far left extremism. I'm against extremism. Uh Right. I'm not against far left extremism. I'm against extremism. And if it so happens that 20 years from now, it's the right that's going down some crazy rabbit hole, I'll be opposing them. Right. Because I'm not against the far left extremism. I'm against all extremism in all its forms. I just don't think it's a helpful thing for society to be doing. So, uh, and, I, and I think, uh, you know, we, we all need to do that. We all need to oppose the crazies on both sides because there's plenty of crazies on both sides, you know. Uh, and uh, there are some genuine white supremacists and there are some genuine racists on the right. Um, and uh, you the problem with what the left has done, as you guys know, is they've they've used that, those words so many times and so inappropriately that no one believes them anymore. Right. So when I say trigonometry was being attacked for weeks by white supremacists who were flooding our chat with gas, the kikes and whatever. Right. They don't believe me because they think, well, if you say white supremacists, that just means people who disagree with you. No, some people believe in actual white supremacy. Some people actually believed that Adolf Hitler was a misunderstood Austrian painter, as they describe him, right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So Never heard that one, but okay. Well, that's, we, we have a small the, bunch of these losers here in the UK who've, who've come up with this shit. Uh, and so that's why I, I'm against all extremism, you know? And I, and I invite people into that space in the center ground as opposed to engaging in the same tactics. Because there are a lot of people to whom the word leftist is now the same as the word Nazi. Like, anyone who disagrees with them is a leftist. Like, Mm. if we get a center-right person on the show, there'll be people who don't really watch our show, but who see that person, they'll come on, and and he's not right-wing enough, and they go, oh, look at this leftist. Mm. It's just a label. doesn't mean anything. Uh, So, yeah, uh, I I think... Uh, what gives me hope is a lot of people are now asking the question. I mean, Brett Weinstein's a perfect example of this. How do we get away from the extremes and move forward as a society? And and I believe that once you start asking the question, eventually the answer will come. Yes. Right. Uh, so I know for myself that if I didn't think it was possible for us to heal somehow, I wouldn't be asking the question of how do we do it? Right. So at some point, portion of my brain is going, OK, it's coming. Right. Now, how that happens, I don't know. And this is where maybe uh, I can't give you as much hope as you'd like, Kerry. I don't know. I'm, I'm not I don't know history well enough to say I'm not aware of any time it's happened. But 
and probably us because history would kind of not really make a big deal out of it. But when was a time in history when two groups were on a road to conflict ideologically and then they just kind of went, ah, oh, you know what, let's not have this fight. Yeah. Right? Like, what would be a good example of that? Because all I see when I look at history, and again, I say this, it's it's a kind of, um, it's an inaccurate view of history because inevitably, like every plane that nearly crashed doesn't make the news as much as one plane that did crash. Right. right. But But still, as I look back in history, I don't know of many situations where you had a massive buildup of tension that just like evaporated. Usually it ends in, in some sort of explosion. Right? Unless there's some so, other third cause that they unite behind, right? Right. And then right. temporarily. So what you're saying is we need another world war, right? Uh, right. We need aliens to come invade us so we can unite <laughs> right. to fight the aliens. That's, that's yeah. what I'm pushing for. Exactly. So this is my point is how do we do that? How do we perhaps be the first major civilizational conflict that doesn't happen? That's for all of us to work out. Yeah. There's a, you're making me think of a quote. I don't remember who it was, but uh, there's this kind of famous quote. Was, it, when there's a boot on your neck, whether it's a right boot or a left boot is of no consequence. Uh, and right. that's something that I kind of keep in mind as we think about this stuff going forward. It's, um, yeah. I, well, I know you said, uh, and I know you have to go. I want to. Uh... I've got time if you want to carry on. Oh, good. I don't know how well, long you guys like to do. We we, t we tend to keep it to an hour because we find after an hour, there's a massive drop off in views. Yes. And we uh, try to keep it to an hour and a half, which is coming up soon, just because my brain stops working. And I think this quality of the show suffers. So, <laughs> um, but I was going to say what, what that answer is, is, is I would say, so some, Carter's an atheist. I'm a pretty new Christian and we have a, a pretty diverse audience. I'm proud of like a lot of Christians and, and atheists who, if you can agree on some basic principles, it doesn't matter if you have a big difference of opinion about whether there's a deity or not. But I would say for any Christians in the audience, I mean, my mind comes to, especially with the talk about making sure that your behavior reflects your beliefs, my mind comes to um, Christ as an example, the way that he lived and what he taught. And like you said, turning the other cheek. It's so, even if you're not a Christian, just looking at that, that story, this it's such a, Revol that's a true revolutionary way of living. We're not used to that. It's not human nature to do that, to live in that way or to try to live in that way. And so that's that's where my mind naturally goes. Um, just someone who's new to the faith and trying to uh, make sure that my behavior reflects my beliefs. And, and, and like you said, we all have bad days. It's not about being perfect either. We all have bad like going to the gym you have to keep exercising it every day i think in every interaction that you have and some days you're gonna suck at it <laughs> right uh, exactly well maybe on, maybe on the final point then very much in that mold of things we just uh, published an interview uh, on sunday with uh, a woman called dr ella hill who uh, is, she was a victim of what in the UK are euphemistically called grooming gangs, uh, which mm. are essentially, uh, it, they're predominantly groups of Pakistani Muslims uh, who were preying on gang raping, torturing, beating young white British girls. 
many of them children. And she was a victim of one of these. Uh, she was raped almost daily for a year, beaten, tortured, uh, the worst things that you can imagine. And she was talking about how being a devout Christian, and I'm, I'm not a believer myself, um, that, you know, she, she made a full recovery. She, she, after all this happened to her, she, did, she got no therapy, as far as I understand it. Um, she went to the police five times and they said, there's nothing we can do. Her perpetrator was never arrested. There's never been in prison. So when you talk about no justice, no peace, that's some serious no justice right there, right? Um, and But she went on to, to go to medical school, become a doctor, a mom to two kids. She's got a happy family, you know, very successful. Everything's good in her life. Even though this issue has been suppressed for 20 years and no one was allowed to talk about it, right, in this country. And she talks about how when they were beating her, she was praying, God, please forgive them. And when she talks about it, you can tell that she has no ill will towards these people. You know? And, and so, I mean, you can say that religion is stupid or, or whatever, and, and maybe it doesn't make sense and whatever, but there's no doubt that it gives it makes some people better people she's a lot better person than i am that's for sure you know so yeah i think there's a lot we can all learn from her yeah that's amazing thank you for sharing that i want to go see that interview well um constantine you need to you need to end on a positive note or Carrie's going to be very sad. That no, that was so. positive. That was beautiful, Carter. Oh, okay. That counts? <laughs> okay, okay. of joy. Yeah, that made me cry. Yeah, uh, okay. Thank you, Constantine, for t giving us your time, your thoughts, your insights. I'm, I'm really appreciative that you could come on the show. And Thanks for having me. Guys. I wish I really nothing but positive things for you guys. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it, guys. Thanks. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please avoid any contact with these individuals. I have calculated a 98.2% chance that these are all rushing bots.
If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Robin D'Angelo is definitely not a con artist. That last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.